This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the time to get to like the biggest boss of them all yeah. of this era that he spends quite a bit of time on jay pierpont morgan morgan savior the magnificent of the nation savior of the nation yeah. and there's even like a documentary like called that <laughs> like um uh, yeah like like i said that history channel documentary i found is just like gushing with admiration and it's always and like for this man yeah like in the voice of this like gr- is it, the narrator is always like this gruff guy kind of sounds like sam elliott or something yeah it's like yeah it's exactly like, yeah young pierpont you know he was a man of so, thrift and principle yeah <laughs> It's like a weird, like, old man, like, Ken yeah. Burns kind of thing. And the music is, like, that kind of, yeah, Ken Burns, like, jingly jangly music, you know, in the background. Like, going to his corner store growing up, he would always <laughs> save with his a bunch of money or whatever. You know, like. Yeah, with with a bunch of names of people. Let me see if I, I screenshotted the names of, like, one guy who is, like, listed in the documentary as, oh, here it is. Let me see. Yeah. Like they talk about how he got in a bit of a dispute with some of his banking partners hmm. and then it cuts to like this guy. I don't know if you can like, like see him. He's like the waspiest <laughs> guy, like yeah. American psycho guy ever. Uh, his name is <laughs> he was, Henry yeah, P. Like Davison. Um, yeah, he does. Like Henry P. Davison, the second great grandson of Morgan partner. Wow. The Ooh. second is an interesting affectation. You don't see the second too often, but I guess it's emasculating. It shows you he's going for the long game. Yeah. Basically. Or, yeah, or it's like it's not his dad who who he's the second of. Um, I don't think he can you do know, that. He named you? after his grandfather. Uh, yeah, you can do that. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. All right. Well. Yeah, of course. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. And, and he even like the elucidation of his diction is like <laughs> so fuddy duddy. It's great. But uh, but everyone like that just kind of like heaps praise upon him. Is and he related to Pierpont Morgan? No, he was the great grandson of one of Morgan's banking partners in the 1860s. Great. So it's like <laughs> just fill it fill it in with your imagination, like the kind of world this guy comes from. That yeah. he like knows that that that's still like enough of a deal. That's his Chiron in a documentary. Is like great grandfather <laughs> was J.P. Morgan's banking partner. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of this section does deal with like the early days of Morgan, particularly the Civil War, which has some very interesting nuggets. But I'll just read the first uh, paragraph that Myers drops because, you know, he goes in hard. So he says, did ever a man of wealth have more in panegyrics than that conquering money here of these present times, J. Pierpont Morgan? Long since, his fame was trumpeted to the four quarters of the earth. His copious praises have been chanted with an extravagance that in the case of anyone else would have been rejected as turgid. Most mighty patriot, an unexcelled public-spirited citizen, great financier, a noble philanthropist, marvelous captain of industry and conservator of the social structure, friend of kings and king among men. These are but a selected few of the apotheoses, too often seriously accepted by the people at large. One writer in particular, raptly reaching up for a large expression of homage, has touched almost the climax of adoration in emblazing him, Morgan the Magnificent. <laughs> wow. Um, Great. So, uh, yeah, he does say here, interestingly, I guess this does track with today, not once has he been subjected to strictures of, quote, tainted wealth, nor at any time has he had to fight an inimical public opinion such as Jay Gould had to in his day and as Rockefeller has encountered throughout his career. For the last 30 years, Morgan has been overwhelmed with laudations of every character, sporadically perhaps some unshackled spirit in Congress or on the public platform might rise to break abruptly in upon this outpouring of flattery by venturing criticisms or revelations. But these eruptions passed idly by, <clears throat> passed idly by, but these eruptions passed idly by, hardly noticed in the general continuous deluge of encomiums. The praises abundant enough bestowed upon other magnates have paled besides those heaped upon Morgan. Without question, he has been held aloft as the most extraordinary financier of all. His feats in this regard have been recounted as though they bordered upon the miraculous. As a railroad and industrial magnate, he, is, he has been interminably glorified. But fully as much so has he been held up to the world's admiration as a philanthropist and a man of versatile parts and benevolences, an encourager and patron of art, a lover of literature, a Croesus with a mind capable of at once <laughs> grasping the most intricate details of finance and reveling in the beauties and understanding of the fine arts. In all the mass of reiterated embellished accounts turned out about Morgan's career, there is no particle of truth save one undisputed fact. Undeniably, he is one of the most towering... <laughs> he is, undeniably, he is one of the towering, aggressive money monarchs of the United States. What does he not own or control? Scan the conglomeration of properties owned exclusively by him or jointly with others. What a bewildering list. The mind is taxed at inventorying them and forbears enumeration. Banking institutions and railroads, industrial plants and mines, land, public utility systems and shares, steamships, publishing houses and newspapers, all his are partially so. Morgan is supereminently one of the, quote, Christian men to whom God in his infinite wisdom has confided the property interests of the country. Let us scrutinize the career of this man. Is that seriously a quote from someone? <laughs> I believe he quotes it later. That is a quote from like an Episcopal bishop. Oh, wow. Yeah, he quotes like him simping about because Morgan such was such a devout Episcopalian. Yeah. Um, yeah, for the people who sort of want a religion, to quote Ebert. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... Let us scrutinize the career of this man, whom God is alleged to have chosen as a trustee for the stewardship of the nation's property and for the guidance of its government. 
foulest of all foul blasphemies would it be to interrogate the divine choice of lieutenants or derogate from them yeah he he jokes about how uh what if the people of the u.s should conclude to confiscate all private property and declare collective ownership upon the ground the good lord god had authorized it so what would the present legal owners say would they not resist and demand written documents attesting the fact of divine sanction signed and sealed by celestial notaries and even if, let us fancy, such documents were forthcoming, would not our magnates have the Supreme Court of the United States denounce them as stupid forgeries, issue a mandate for the arrest of their contumacious author, and again sternly declare, for the 20,000th time, that no power was superior to that of the Supreme Court of the United States? All other criteria failing, we shall have to consider Morgan by the light of terrestrial evidence, perhaps a poor method, but the only one within our horizon. So yes, so judge him by terrestrial evidence he does <laughs> and uh yeah first thing he does is like shoot down the theory that he was a self-made man because of course he was the son of junius spencer morgan who was junius. in his own right a millionaire um and also i think i also discovered people are having um, these roman names very like, weird right yeah very weird since we're playing board of directors bingo i remember i discovered sometime last year that he was on the board of like the Aetna insurance company in 1820 with a bunch of other names that like you would still recognize to this day, I think including an Aster and a couple others. But I mean, it's like Aetna. That's another one we'll spin off for one day, but that was a fire insurance company originally, or it was like, I think it was a life and I'm sorry. I think it was a life insurance company that, got in trouble for like trading. I think they took out like life insurance policies on slaves in the mm. South or they let slave owners take out. They slave profited off that basically. Policies. Yeah. Slave yeah. insurance. Property yeah. insurance basically. Yeah. But they're yeah. still around today. Super based healthcare provider and our wonderful system and oh et cetera, God. et cetera. Yeah. And so Junius S. Morgan also, you know, uh, not a native New Yorker because JP Morgan was a son of, of sus Hartford. That was the environment he kind of grew up in. I assume the J.P. Morgan documentary does not mention that his father, Junius Morgan, was a millionaire. Oh, well, no, they do, but they don't mention anything negative and associate, like how he made his money at all. Just like he was a successful businessman in Hartford. That's it. That's all they say. Oh, I see. Yeah, basically. So um, now here's interesting. The whole idea of like being a self-made man. It's like not nothing to be a millionaire. Like, yeah, I mean, especially I guess the, at the time. No, for sure. The documentary doesn't say necessarily. No, it does address the fact that he kind of um, I mean, he he even inherited a ton of money from his father when he died, when he was already a successful businessman. But it was enough of an inheritance that like it enabled him to make even more moves. So it was quite substantial. Here's one name that I know has popped up before. Junius S. Morgan uh, became a partner of George Peabody in the banking business. And I believe this is the same Peabody as the, like the Peabody award for like oh. brave art, artistic journalism, whatever the fuck. Right. Yeah. Brave. Uh, art- yeah. yeah. The Peabody award for brave artistic journalism. Yeah, I know. And whatever what the fuck. Mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that it's like that Peabody and, um, or that family basically. And so this is interesting. When the civil war came on, George Peabody and company were appointed the financial representatives in England of the U S government. Synchron- synchronously with this appointment, 
their wealth suddenly began to pile up. Where hitherto they had amassed riches by stages not remarkably rapid, they now added many millions within a very few years. And so, like, spoiler alert, uh, they committed fraud. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, all that stuff. So, actually, J.P. Morgan spent part of his time, I think, growing up in London. Because he, or at least he spent part of his time because he moved there with his family. And then, I think, came to New York like around the dawn of the Civil War, like or maybe around eight, right before, like 1860. Oh, sorry, not just fraud, but as Gustavus Myers says, their methods were not only very far from being legitimate, but were within the pale of the most active treason. This guy's writing style uh, is just un- it's great. unmatched. I, just, <laughs> I have to read like whole yeah. block quotes. It's yeah. so good. So he says, the Constitution of the United States defines treason as consisting in citizens levying war upon the nation or in giving aid and comfort to the enemy. According to the writers of the day, the methods of George Peabody and company were of such a character as to be not only treasonable, but double treason in that while in the very act of giving insidious aid to the enemy, George Peabody and company were the financial plenipotentiaries of the United States government and were being well paid to advance its interests. An article for this actually honestly reminds me of like Alan Dulles in like World War II, like being sent as like OSS, but he's actually making like side deals with the Nazis kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you can't trust these motherfuckers when you send them abroad to represent you during wartime. Basically, they're like they're going to literally collaborate with the enemy. So this is an article in the Springfield Republican, a paper that Gustavus Myers likes rarely in October 1866 asserted, quote, For all who know anything of the subject know very well that Peabody and his partners in London gave us no faith and no help in our struggle for national existence. They participated to the full in the common English distrust of our cause and our success and talked and acted for the South rather than for the nation. Hmm. Interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So next section, millions from alleged treason. Uh, The writer went on to say that George Peabody and company swelled the feeling of doubt abroad and speculated upon it. No individuals, he continued, contributed so much to flooding our money markets with the evidences of our debt in Europe and breaking down their prices and weakening financial confidence in our nationality than George Peabody and company, and none made more money by the operation. All the money and more, we presume, that Mr. Peabody is giving away so lavishly among our institutions of learning was gained by the speculations of his house in our misfortunes. So then in the New York Evening Post in 1866 made the same statements, accusing Peabody and Junius S. Morgan of using their positions as U.S. financial representatives to undermine the very cause they were paid to represent and profiting heavily from their treachery. Hmm. Whether they are all true or partially true or not true at all, we do not know. No confirmation of this can be found in official records. The statements are given here for what they may be worth. Uh, But it should be remembered that not the 1,000th part of what was going on in the world of capitalism ever found its way into official documents. Ain't that the truth? Hmm. Reasoning from conditions prevailing at the time, it is more than likely that the accusations were by no means ill-founded. You know, he points out that this is the environment young JP grew up in, you know, surrounded by this like treasonous uh, criminal <laughs> behavior all the time. You know, he goes back at remember, it's like remember Vanderbilt and how he was ripping off the country during the Civil War yeah. with his rickety ships. This um, is even worse than that, though. This is just like it really up. is. Yeah, unlike multiple, both what his father was doing and what J.P. Morgan would end up doing. So yeah, this is almost like cartoonish, like you know, level <laughs> of like playing both sides, like 
Yeah. So it says uh, in one prolific field of defrauding the government of custom dues, large private fortunes had already been amassed by the year 1860. In preceding volumes, we have given instance after instance, particularly the enormous frauds of Phelps Dodge and Company, but those were only few of immense total. That was where they were just like systematically scamming the customs duties and like scraping off like millions of dollars that should have been like tariff taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, but of course Phelps and Dodge were like so serious. Yes. You know, just so responsible, blah, blah, blah. So it talks more about like evasions of customs duties and uh, blah, blah, blah. Like this is all the stuff that was going on when Morgan first ventured into the business world. Oh, yeah, here's an interesting little side note, just talking about the general criminality of the time. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Even when wealthy elites were engaging in illegal human trafficking, the (laughs) government just looked the other way. So even slave traders, the abominations and horrors of whose traffic shocked the whole civilized world, seemed to have bought immunity, and this too after the Civil War had begun. According to the Duc de Rochefoucauld-Liancourt, <laughs> who traveled... Wow, Roche, yeah. Rochefoucauld. Yeah. Um, cool name. Uh, who traveled in the U.S. in 1795. Quote, nearly 20 vessels from the harbors of the U.S. are employed in the importation of Negroes to Georgia and the West India Isles. Uh, in his travels, the Duke further told how the merchants of Rhode Island were the conductors of what he described as, quote, the accursed traffic. Oh, wow. Rhode Island. I Rhode Island like, is like a really uh, sus hub. As a, You know, they all gathered in Newport. Uh, yeah. 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 There's a lot dedicated in the the, uh, the Hereditary uh, Fortunes book yeah. about like the, the I think somebody literally called it like the seed of Moloch or something. <laughs> like yeah. Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, Taylor Swift bought one of their mansions. Uh, she even really? has a song about it. Yeah. It's, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. She oh, bought no. Hol- Holiday House, which was the. Uh, the mansion of like the standard oil harknesses. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. Who are Wonderful. Kind of mentioned a little bit in, in the ending of the hereditary fortunes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So listen to this actually. And actually I think I discussed this in the first uh, chapter of the demon forces uh, episode about how like when Liberia was first settled, that there were a lot of like boot, like smugglers that were still going and like basically stealing slaves and bringing them to the, the Western Hemisphere, and the U.S. Uh, kind of, in a kind of self-serving way, like announced itself as like we're putting the Navy off the coast of Africa to like stop slave ships, but it was really like an excuse for them to just like set like a footprint in Africa, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but at the same time, like it it wasn't for no reason that they were patrolling the waters because uh, he writes here: U.S. law prohibited the importation of slaves after the year 1808 and outlawed the traffic as piracy. But the slave traffic continued, and large sums of northern capital, particularly of New York, Spanish, and Cuban capital, were invested in it. Slaves snatched from Africa were sold in the Spanish colonies in America. And let's see, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So from May 1st, 1852 to May 1862, 26 American schooners and brigs were were libeled by the government at the Port of New York, charged with being engaged in slave traffic. Some were seized at New York and others on the coast of Africa, like I said. Many of these vessels were condemned. On, in November 1863, Seward wrote officially to Lord Lyons that a steamship had recently landed more than 1,000 African Negroes near Cardenas or Sagua, Cuba, 
that, quote, very prominent and wealthy persons are said to be implicated in the business and that it was believed the steamer went to Nassau in the Bahamas after landing the Negroes. So it's like they went to Paradise Island afterwards yeah. and, like, all of these, like, wealthy people just got to get, like, interesting that human trafficking, very prominent and wealthy persons are said to be implicated and all gets covered up. I mean, I mean you know, it, yeah. there's, there's a weird disconnect. The they love, yeah. I mean, human capital They love trafficking. At, eat, yeah. See, I, I, there's always a separation between like, okay, like maybe what like Jeffrey Epstein was doing and like slavery, basically. Mm-hmm. But this is an example of like, even when the government says it's totally illegal and you can't do it, and you know, it's seen as like an accursed thing to be doing. Some people just can't help themselves. They don't give a shit and they can get away with it most of the time. I guess 22 ships, 26 ships were not lucky enough to get away with it. But the people that were funding those expeditions, of course, it's always, you know, the traffickers get caught. Their ship, the Lolita Express gets impounded. But like the people, the bigger forces behind that kind of operation uh, slip away. You know? Yeah, I mean, and a lot of it, like, I mean, a lot of the basic institutional structures that, I mean, really, you could say, like, yeah, the same way that, like, trafficking and, like, actually kidnapping people was an aspect of the slave trade in the same way that, like, even after, like, the importation of new slaves was outlawed, there was still, like, a massive, like, uh, you know, economic dependency on slavery. Uh, and it was still like a massive part of the economy in the southern states um, and, you know, to an extent in the north insofar as they were interrelated. Um, and, you know, there was like slate, like people like catching runaway slaves and things like that. That's a whole industry. So, like, in, you know, in the same way that you see echoes of like slavery as institution in like the prison system. Uh, I mean, it makes sense that like in trafficking networks, you can see the echoes of slavery as well. I mean, Africa, I mean, you know, Haiti, places like that, you know, like I think yeah. that, you yeah. know, it's still the primary victims of human trafficking are like marginalized groups, you know, like, uh, yeah, I don't know what the like, I mean, like Eastern Europe is definitely a big hub, but also like, you know, Latin America, Mexico, Southeast Asia, you know, places no, like for that. sure. Yeah. One individual that he mentioned specifically was uh, this incident in 1861 where the bark Augusta was seized by U.S. Marshal Robert Murray at Greenpoint, Long Island, like Greenpoint, Brooklyn, on the charge of being fitted out as a slaver to go to Africa and was condemned. A party of capitalists headed by Appleton Oaksmith and his brother, scions of a well-known family, were financing the expedition. So this, this is even on his Wikipedia. If you look up Appleton Oaksmith, who is from uh, Carteret County, North Carolina, very prominent son of North Carolina. But apparently, like to Murray's amazement, the U.S. District Attorney's Office in New York then allowed the vessel to be bonded for an insignific- insignificant sum and licensed her to clear the port. Hastening after her, Murray again seized the Augusta at Fire Island. He then formally and circumstantially charged collusion between the slave trade interests and certain officers of the federal judiciary at New York. The Secretary of the Interior subsequently decided that collusion had not been proved. So then I guess, you know, he ended up, oh, he was actually involved in the filibustering campaigns of General Walker in Nicaragua. And mm-hmm. and it was actually the office of secretary in Walker's like fake government that he set up. There was a, there was a movie about that, I think, that was like, uh, anyways, um, <laughs> I, I'd like to get to one day because it was like a yeah. parable about like the Contra War. 
and stuff. Um, so then I guess then he, yeah, in December 1861, Appleton was captured on Fire Island and indicted for equipping a slave ship because Lincoln, no, had suspended habeas corpus. Uh, he was quickly jailed and convicted in 1862. He escaped from jail in Massachusetts on September 11th, 1862, and fled to <laughs> England. His imprisonment placed the entire family in a compromised political and social position, but they maintained his innocence. His mother, Elizabeth, would spend years seeking audiences with government officials and finally with the president to procure her son's innocence. He spent years in exile in London. And then he came back. Then he did get pardoned by the president came back for uh, to Bogue Banks and wanted to build a new resort by the sea. He chose at first Fort Macon, but was unsuccessful. And then he turned his attention to an area which now comprises all of Atlantic Beach and a portion of Pine Knoll Shores. Uh, he acquired title to all his property in the names of two straw ladies, his wife and sister, uh, and then <laughs> became a representative in the North Carolina General Assembly. And then he drowned. Wait. Oh, this is dark. This is dark. He had a lot of kids. Oh, sorry. No, he didn't drown. I'm sorry. He had eight kids with his second wife after having four with his first. Bessie, Corrine, Mildred, and Pauline all drowned on July 4th, 1879 when the family's boat capsized. Only Appleton and his sons Randolph and Stanley survived the accident. It was rumored, though never proven, that Appleton murdered his daughters by drowning them. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. There's no, there's no like citation for that. It just threw it out uh, there. Yeah. So just like Henry Murray, like he's a family murderer. They always turn on their own, I guess. I don't know. It seems sick. Anyways, that's just like the environment that JP Morgan, I guess, yes. you know, grew up on. Uh, maybe we should move on to maybe the carbine incident. So this is like the defrauding of inventors, the theme we've talked about, right? Yes. They hate so, uh, yeah, Myers notes that da, 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 war between North and South was generally regarded as unavoidable by like the capitalists. The South right. was busily preparing. What were Northern factory owners doing? Working their plants day and night to supply the South with equipment. In the first months of 1860, the Asa Whitney works were run to their fullest capacity to provide wheels largely for Southern railroads. In the same months, the Baldwin Locomotive Works of Philadelphia turned out 58 locomotives, all but four of which were for Southern railroads. Bemin and Doherty and the firm of William Setters and Company, machine tool builders in Philadelphia, were filling heavy orders for Southern railway and machine shops. These capitalists and all who were doing as they were knew that every indication threatened that this equipment would soon be used in war against the very section to which they belonged and for the interests and principles of which they professed to be such staunch adherents. In fact, some of them made declamatory patriotic speeches at the very time when they were profiting, profiting from equipping what they knew would shortly develop into an openly hostile people intent upon sustaining their purposes by armed force. So he says the northern gun manufacturers did the same. Not one of them scrupled to fill Southern orders. They also refused, for the most part, to adopt any improvements or utilize any of the numerous new inventions. In pleading for the establishment of more government armories and foundries, Representative Wallace of Pennsylvania told Congress in 1863, oh, this is interesting, he calls out, when we look at the manner 
in which our army and government have been defrauded by peculators. I don't know if you meant speculators. Um, we must shrink from the idea of trusting to private contractors to furnish the necessary means for our national defense. Dependence upon private contractors for arms and munitions of war is too precarious and uncertain in all respects, as well as too costly, upon which to rest such an important and vital interest of the nation. The improvements made of late years in the power and destructiveness of all arms have rendered comparatively useless weapons that were deemed the very best, perhaps not more than a quarter of a century ago. The interest of the private contractor is to discourage all change in the character of arms which his machinery is prepared to make, as machinery is costly, and every material change necessitates a corresponding change in his machinery. The explanation of the gun manufacturers was that patriotism was not involved, that it was simply, quote, a case of business. Hmm, okay. Well, so then we get to the breech-loading rifle. Uh, doubtless it was that this acute business instinct which led them to steal outright the patents for breech-loading guns. According to the conclusions of a Congressional Committee on Patents, the inventor of mechanical devices for breech-loading small arms and machine guns was George W. Morse, who took out patents in 1856. The gun manufacturers appropriated his inventions. As in the cases of Goodyear and many another inventor, Morse was cheated out. Thrown into the deepest poverty, he applied in 1878 to the government for payment on the score of his invention. In favoring his petition, the Committee on Patents reported, He is ignored and poor in his declining years, and those who have adopted his inventions without remunerating him are rolling in wealth. Uh, in the case of another inventor, C.D. Shubarth, a foreigner residing in Providence, Rhode Island, a government commission reported these facts, that he had invented a new type of gun, that in order to raise the funds, he had to take in several capitalists as partners, that he was informed that to get a contract from the War Department, it was necessary to bribe one of the U.S. senators from Rhode Island, that he was then given a letter of introduction to U.S. Senator J.F. Simmons by the Providence firm of A.D. and J.Y. Smith, quote, a business house of great wealth and respectability, and that he arranged to give Simmons 5% of the amount of the contract, Schubarth thus obtained a contract for 50,000 Springfield rifles. According to the evidence before the government commission, Simmons' graft amounted to $50,000. Everywhere in the struggle for commercial success obtruded fraud, theft, and murder. One or more of a combination of these methods constituted the means by which wealth was largely piled up. Overwork and criminal accidents joined with disease and want and worry and unsanitary housing killed off myriads of workers by sudden or lingering death. Yet not alone in the factories and mines, on the sea and the tenements, did this scourge of death go on as an accompaniment of the rapid growth of private wealth. Out on the primitive plains and in the mountain fastnesses, whole tribes of Indians were ruthlessly despoiled, driven off, and then, on some pretext or other, slaughtered so that their lands and resources on them could be gratuitously seized. The outbreak of the Civil War gave the mercantile class unsurpassed opportunities for profiting from what amounted to organized murder. Yeah. However severe the statement seems, and I love it is in next... reality quite mild in describing the prevailing practices of that. And I love the next so that... chapter is called Profiting from Organized Murder. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, yes. So as we talked about, yeah, like like Vanderbilt sold a bunch of like rotting, like decrepit ships that almost sank to the army for like hugely inflated prices. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a huge scandal with shoes or like the shoes that they gave to the soldiers or maybe that was 1812. I forget. 
there's so much shoe fraud going on, but like they gave shoes. Oh yeah. And in the, uh, in the one item of shoes alone, the shoe manufacturers sold to the government from 1861 to 62, 5 million pairs of shoes to the army as to which transaction, a government commission reported that at least 3 million had been defrauded, that supplies of shoes, which were so bad, they could not be sold privately had been palmed off upon the government. So yeah, that's what they, they take like their dregs of like broken shoes. Like, yeah, very similar to the, the price. Boat. Um, this is an amazing part. J.P. Part Morgan was profiting from the same methods, or, you know, this is not a relevant part, uh, at the time. He was, in 1861, a robust young man, just turned 24 years old. He inherited from his parents, says one of his biographers, their purity of character and exceptional abilities. Those attributed lofty virtues were not in evidence. At a critical juncture, when the Union government was most in need of soldiers, Morgan chose not only to stay at home, but to profit from the sale of worthless rifles for the arming of men who responded to the call to arms. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln was sending out his proclamations calling for volunteers. The contest was a momentous struggle, not only between sections, but between two kinds of conflicting capitalist institutions. The so-called common people, the factory and shop workers, the slum dwellers, the professionals and farmers, heroically poured in for enlistment. Hundreds of thousands went forth to the camps and battlefields, never to return. Although well-qualified physically and mentally for military service, Morgan avoided any kind of duty interfering with money-making and comfort. He differed in no wise from almost all the men of position and property. They restricted their exuberant patriotism to talk and the waving of bunting, but took great care to keep away from the zone of personal danger. The rich, whose interests the northern armies were at bases fighting, uh... Yeah, for whose interest they were fighting. Yeah, fighting for. Mm -hmm. For whose interest the Northern Armies were at bases fighting, not only as a class evaded enlistment, but proceeded to demoralize, spread disability, and sow death among their own armies. Wow. Some patriots. Yes. Um, while doing this, and at the same time swindling the government, states, and cities had a vast sums in army contracts, they caused the Draft Act to be so amended that it gave men of property the easy opportunity of escaping conscription by permitting them to hire substitutes for $300. So yes, we've all, uh, I think heard of that where as the documentary says, uh, it was quite common for men of means to hire a substitute to go to war is, you know, I mean, they're saying he was no better or worse than his class, but they think his class was fucking awesome yeah. and amazing. So yeah, like he said, he lays it out here that, J. Pierpont Morgan's first ascertainable business transaction was one of these army contracts. And while it was not on so large a scale as those of older capitalists, it was, judged by prevailing capitalist standards, a very able stroke for a young man of 24. Its success gave promise of much greater things to come. So here, here's the long and short of it. In 1857, the army inspecting officers condemned a large number, number of Hall's carbines as thoroughly unserviceable and as of obsolete and dangerous pattern. The government thereupon auctioned off quantities of them from time to time at prices ranging from between $1 and $2 each. 5,000 of them, however, still remained in the army arsenal in New York City and were there when the Civil War broke out. In May 1861, one Arthur M. Eastman of Manchester, New Hampshire, made an offer to the government to buy these rifles at $3 each. Knowing the great frauds going on in the furnishing of army supplies, the government officials might well have been suspicious of this offer, but apparently did not question its good faith. The rifles were sold to Eastman at $3.50 each, but either 
Eastman lacked the money for payment, Urban thrust forward to act as a dummy for a principal in the background. One Simon Stevens then stepped on the scene, agreeing to back Eastman to the extent of 20000 which sum was to be applied for payment of the rifles. As collateral security, Stevens took a lien upon the rifles. But from whom did Stevens get the funds? The official and legal records show that it was from J. Pierpont Morgan. So this section, a great scandal of the time. The next step in this transaction was in Stevens telegraphing, in August 1861, a notification to General Fremont, commanding at St. Louis, that he, that he had 5,000 new carbines in perfect condition and inquiring whether Fremont would take them. From Fremont's headquarters came word to ship them to the Army headquarters at St. Louis at once. During all this time, the carbines had remained at the arsenal in New York City. Upon receiving Fremont's order, Morgan paid the government the sum of $17,486 at the rate of $350 a carbine. The rifles were shipped direct from the arsenal to St. Louis. And what was the sum charged upon the government for them? The bill made out to Fremont called for the payment of $22 apiece for the consignment. Damn. This is one of the many army contracts popularly and officially regarded as scandalous in the highest degree. There was a congressional committee in 1862 that investigated it. After a full inquiry, they reported, quote, Thus the proposal actually was to sell to the government at $22 each, $5,000 of its own arms, the intention being, if the offer was accepted, to obtain these arms from the government at three fifty each. It is very evident that the very funds with which this purchase was affected were borrowed on the faith of the previous agreement to sell. The government not only sold one day for $17,486 arms, which it had agreed the day before to repurchase for $109,912, making a loss to the United States of $92,000, but virtually furnished the money to pay itself uh, that which it received. The committee further reported the rifles were so bad that it was found they would shoot off the thumbs of the very soldiers using them. But not only did the government condemn the transaction as a barefaced swindle, Marcellus Hartley, himself a dealer in arms and a self-confessed swindler, had declared before the committee, quote, I think the worst thing this government has been swindled upon has been these confounded Hall's carbines. The government refused to pay Morgan the $22 demanded for each of the 5,000 carbines, whereupon Morgan pressed his claim. Thus it was that the case of J. Pierpont Morgan versus the United States government came into the public records. To adjudicate this claim, as well as many other similar claims, the Secretary of War appointed a commission composed of J. Holt and Robert Dale Owen, the son of the famous Robert Owen. And reporting in 1862, the commission stated that 104 cases uh, involving demands upon the National Treasury, the extent of $50 million have been referred to it, and that it had cut out 17 million of claims as extravagant and fraudulent. It's like the COVID unemployment all over again. Yeah. Um, in passing upon Morgan's claim, it declared that General Fremont had no authority <laughs> to contract for the rifles, but that it, the committee, recognized a legal obligation on the part of the government arising from the fact that the farms... Uh, the arms passed in the service of the army as the best way out of a bad bargain. It decided to pay Morgan at the rate of $13 and 31 cents a carbine and pointed out that even at this price, Morgan and Stevens stood to make $49,000 above the price at which the rifles have been sold to them by the U S under this ruling, a total of $55,550 is paid to Morgan by the government, which sum was accepted on account only. This settlement, however, was not satisfactory to the claimants. The full pound of blood was demanded. So then they filed a lawsuit. 
They they couldn't. They already. <laughs> that's already like a four hundred percent increase in your like profit, basically. But still, they fought a lawsuit. No, they weren't satisfied. Uh, the court of claims at Washington, and they wanted fifty eight grand more. And so <laughs> we got Simon Stevens versus U.S. government, and uh, in the settlement of the case before the court, the fact was emphasized that according to the government, the carbines had been inspected and pronounced unserviceable by the government ordinance officer in delivering his decision. Judge Peck said, I mean, yeah, the facts of the case basically uh, confirmed that it was incredibly fraudulent, but did Morgan and his associates get their full demands from the government? They did. Judge Peck held that when Fremont had agreed to buy the rifles, he had entered into a contract which bound the government and that a contract was a contract. The court took no cognizance of the fact that the worthless condemned rifles had been represented as new, nor did it consider the fact that the money with which they had been bought from the government was virtually government money. <laughs> it gave Stevens a judgment against the government for $58,175. Um, so I guess that decision assured the open sesame for the holders of what were then cynically called dead horse claims to collect the full amount of their swindling operations. The government can now plead itself defenseless against the horde of contractors who had bribed officials to accept decayed ships and defective armor, worthless arms, <clears throat> worthless arms and shoddy clothing, flimsy tents, blankets and shoes, and haversacks which came to pieces, adulterated food and similar equipment and supplies. As for criminal action, not a single one of these defrauders went to prison or stood any danger of it. The courts throughout the land were perennially busy rushing off petty defrauders to imprisonment and employing the full punitive power of their machinery against poor, uninfluential offenders. This was the real beginning of J. Pierpont Morgan's business career. The facts are there, immovable and unassailable, in the public records. This was the brand of, quote, patriot he and his fellow capitalists were. Yet ever since, and especially so today, clergy and politicians and shallow, obsequious writers saturate the public with myths all designed to prove Morgan's measureless benevolence and lofty patriotism. So, I mean, yep, that's how yeah. he started. A lot of people yeah. were mad about it, but... Couldn't do anything. And, and that was just the beginning. Paid. Just beginning. Yeah. The, the the beginning of an American business patriot. So yeah. then we get to the, the the next chapter, the flowering of the Morgan Fort. Uh, yeah, the flowering of the Morgan fortune. Yeah, another amazing what... quote opening this. Great is Mr. Morgan's power, greater in some respects than even that of president or kings, wrote a seasoned British observer some years ago. Maurice Lowe in The Independent. Cool. Which fact, um, patent to even the casual onlooker, easily passes uncontradicted. Who indeed can gainsay its truth? Yeah. Wow. He is the great sublime patriot of these days. Um, yeah. How could that, how <laughs> could he be the same Morgan who came into collusion <laughs> with investigating committees during the Civil War and who was practically denounced in the severest language? Verily, he is the same man, the identical same. Behold him in the budding of his career, and observe how he began it. And behold him now, glutted with wealth and power, covered with honors, august dispenser of benevolence, the incarnate source of all wisdom, financial and otherwise, the mighty man of commerce and of the arts, the idol of capitalist ideals. Yeah, so um, that's, uh, so I guess it goes to like his, in the post-war period, he starts to like make his first moves i guess one of the first things he does is he ends up fighting with a uh, gould and his crony fisk who we talked about in 
volume two over the Albany and Susquehanna railroad. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that section's called, uh, he acquires universal respect or sorry, he attains <laughs> yes. universal respect. Yeah. Universally yeah. respected, which means Meyer says that like he earned the respect of his class. Right. Uh, the opinion of which was held to be all inclusive. So what did he do to get such respect? Um, what was the special merit involved in his overthrowing of Gould and Fisk and getting control of the railroad in question? Well, he does point out, had either Gould and Fisk on the one hand or Morgan on the other built the Albany and Susquehanna Railroad or provided the funds for its construction? <laughs> Not a mother's son of them. Uh, this line, now a part of the Delaware and Hudson Railroad, had been built with public funds drawn from the treasuries of New York State and of various counties and municipalities in that state. At least one million of the 45 million drained from the public treasury in New York State for the building of railroads had gone to the construction of the Albany and Susquehanna. The usual pilfering processes marked its building. Large sums were stolen in various forms of graft, and as is the case of the Erie Railroad and others, the state was cheated out of much of its loans. Then the group of capitalists in control watered the Albany and Susquehanna stock and manipulated it for speculative purposes until they were ousted by other capitalists who repeated their manipulating methods on a larger scale. This railroad's chief value lay in the fact that it had direct connections with the coal mining regions of Pennsylvania. Yes, and those were very important indeed. So two contesting sets of capitalists now rushed forward to seize control of it. One crowd was led by Gould and Fisk, the other by J. Pierpont Morgan. The older capitalists were amazed at the sight of these young men audaciously struggling for the possession of a valuable railroad system, in the construction of which neither set had had any part whatever. Old Commodore Vanderbilt looked on with a blended admiration and envy. Gould was but 33 years old, and Morgan 31. Each side bought all the stock it could, Gould with the proceeds of his thefts, and Morgan possibly with the proceeds of such transactions as the rifle sale, for instance— Stockholders' elections were held amid scenes of the greatest disorder, and each party claimed the election of its own board of directors and accused the other of the grossest frauds. So then it went to the courts. 21 separate suits were brought by Gould and Fisk, and a sheaf of injunctions obtained. Morgan fought back. But as long as the legal contest was confined in New York City... Gould and Fisk had the surety of victory. The reason was that such Supreme Court judges as Barnard and Cardozo, formerly Vanderbilt's tools, were now Gould's chattels and did whatever he ordered. Very soon an edifying situation turned up. So fiercely determined was each side to kick out the other that the railroad was thrown into a state of absolute disorganization and could not be operated. After spending a million dollars of public money on its construction, the people were forced to look on, while the two parties, neither of whom had invested a dollar in its building, claimed to be its owners and stopped the and estopped, is that a word? Estopped yeah. the other with judicial orders and injunctions. Which of the two would come out ahead? The outcome was doubtful. Gould and Fisk were cleverly entrapped into making an agreement which led to their utter eventual defeat. The agreement was to this purport, that inasmuch as the conflicting parties could not agree, they had arrived at a mutual understanding by which they would write to Governor Hoffman, setting forth that it had become impracticable to run the railroad, and therefore requesting the appointment of a state official to operate it pending a new election of directors. Uh, that was sent to Governor Hoffman, I wonder Halleck Hoffman, uh, ancestor, probably, in 1869, and its provisions were accepted. So then both sides charged with fraud, more suits followed. Goulden fixed charge that Ramsey, president of the road, had illegally issued 3,000 shares of stock to the Morgan party. 
Morgan, Samuel Sloan, and others of the opposition retaliated with charges that Gould and Fisk had used force and fraud, and both parties were, I guess, uh, sued by the Attorney General of New York because spurious votes had been counted. Uh, There's just fraud everywhere. This is a later portion, but, I mean, you can backtrack. This is something that you want to read, but I think this is worth getting in. Um, yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, contrary to the description so widely and continuously disseminated, many capitalists are not men of personal courage and the sense of standing up man-to-man and verbally having it out, as the vulgar phrase goes. The cunning, cupidity, turpitude, and treachery so impregnated in business, and in fact the foundation of successful business, breed both a physical and a moral cowardice. Well able as they are to fight their combats through lawyers, most capitalists, by reason of a certain degeneracy, lack the faculty of exercising a strong, direct, personal, virile influence over men, such as a fighting pirate captain of the old days held over his band. Morgan has been one of the few exceptions. United with his wealth, there has been in him a powerful bellicose personality, a tremendous vitality of both mind and physique, a man who can impose his will by sheer brute strength as well as by reasoning, who could convince by argument and, if necessary, bulldoze and terrorize. Such a combination allied with wealth and education, for he was college-bred, and a complete knowledge of all the tricks of the trade was bound to prove invincible, for or almost so. His very appearance, arising from an unfortunate facial disfigurement, added to his forceful appearance and to the terror which he inspired. Not inappropriately did he name his yacht the Corsair, he was a modern embodiment in a present-day guise of some antique corsair, the quality simply being transposed for adaptation to new conditions. And then he talks about his interactions with Vanderbilt. Instead of having to squirm himself into Vanderbilt's confidence, he compelled that haughty magnet to come to terms. This fact Morgan himself testified to in the suit arising from Vanderbilt's South Pennsylvania Railroad Project, a transaction which has been described heretofore. This litigation, it will be recalled, sprang from Vanderbilt's building a parallel line to compete with the Pennsylvania Railroad. I think we talked about this. Uh, Morgan, it was true, had acted as Vanderbilt's financial agent, but he had also heavy interests in the Pennsylvania Railroad, and his banking house represented a large foreign holding interests in that line. Represented large foreign holding interests in that line. Sorry, I said a large. Above all, he was on the sharp lookout for the interests of J. Pierpont Morgan. How did he force Vanderbilt to sell his South Pennsylvania line to the Pennsylvania Railroad? In an examination on December 13, 13, 1885, before examiner John Ace Weiss in the federal court at Philadelphia, he related that when he returned from Europe in June 1885, he became satisfied that something should be done to bring more harmony among the trunk lines, and he added that he believed that sufficient pressure should be brought on Mr. Vanderbilt to induce him to sell out. Of the specific nature of this pressure... No explanation was given, but those familiar with the immense coercive power of the Pennsylvania Railroad and the power of Morgan's bank and that of his correlated banks were not in doubt as to its significance. The treaty of peace between the warring magnets was finally made aboard Morgan's yacht. What was Morgan's part? To use his own language, he bought from the South Pennsylvania and sold it to the Pennsylvania. What his rewards as arbiter were was a fact not made public. We can conjecture that his bill was no slight one. This treaty, like all such agreements, was made only to be broken. The Reading Railroad, under which the pact, which was to be indemnified from certain property, claimed that it was cheated, hence the suit. Up to this time, that is to say, 1886, Morgan had figured little as a railroad magnet. His conspicuousness was more that of a powerful banker who made a specialty of reorganizing railroads. Let it not be supposed that the term reorganizing comprehended the undertaking of expensive improvements in the physical layout and operation of railroads. 
the introduction of safer appliances and equipment, and the minimizing of danger to passengers and to railroad workmen. Reorganization included none of these things. There was not a railroad corporation in the country which did not violently contest the passage of laws requiring safety apparatus, and which should not violate such laws as were finally passed. Progressively, the yearly death rate, I think this is what you were talking about before, of yeah. passengers and railroad employees increased. The profits, in the form of dividends, came not only from a series of extortions, but from the slaughter of a greater number of men, women, and children than were killed in the worst wars of the civilized, or rather, uncivilized, world has known. The reorganization, so-called, were not intended to change these conditions. Their sole purpose was to put the railroads in a position where profits would be assured, no matter what the public expense or at what cost of life. After a railroad had been grabbed and thrown into bankruptcy by successive crews of capitalists, a reorganizer, such as Morgan, would step in, compel the creditors to settle at his own terms, force the small stockholders to consent to some new arrangement of stock, and issue new securities to be sold in Europe or America. In brief, a quote-unquote reorganization consisted in scaling down the debts, summarily expunging them, and in devising new plans by which the profits would be greater. Yeah, pretty much. He was yeah. the, the merger acquisition king. I think the nickname of it was uh, that people used to call it was reorganization. Oh when yeah, he'd take over your railroad, right? And Ruin he did it? start doing <laughs> make it even worse than it was. Yeah, yeah, he did start doing that. The other thing that was kind of happening around this time was uh, that I was not. You, you really don't hear about ever was like the Great Bond issue of eighteen seventy seven. So. This is, you know, where the government basically sells bonds. Well, I'll just read a little bit um, okay. from here. So, da, da, da. yeah, the, this apparently was kind of a big turning point, and Morgan was very involved in it. Um, one thing that happened before this, actually, another thing that Myers thinks is important was the demonetization of silver in 1873, which mm. Congress passed. Um, and that was kind of seen by a lot of people as like an attack on the middle class and a boon to the bankers. Right. And um, there, I guess uh, there was... <coughs> yeah, it's crazy how much changed. Like, there used to be like, not too long before this, there was still like a national bank of the United States. Well, there was, but then Andrew Jackson... I think yeah. killed the charter. The second one, I forget though. Or did they override his veto? No, I think he vetoed it, right? Because uh, that was Nicholas Biddle, Biddle that ran it. Yeah, exactly. But who's, uh, according Jackson to Myers, was a while very corrupt. That. Yeah. So um, yeah, but, he but was there still was like that operative. So he had been the the president of the National Bank at one point. I think that maybe its power was reduced heavily uh, by Jackson, maybe. But yeah, yeah, I think it was. There's a big yeah, fight over Andrew that. Yeah, because Andrew Jackson was considerably before um, those 1830s when he fought yeah. for it. But yeah, so he mentions that like that the Demonetization Act went uh, went through by evasion. Not a word is directly mentioned in it of the demonetization of silver. Few knew of its support. Even the advocates of bimetallism voted for it. It was one of the most adroit bills ever put through Congress, and it was only after it became law that its concealed provisions began to be understood. Then a terrific cry of rage went up from the middle class of one end of the country to the other. The excitement was intense. So Myers says it was the middle class which was struck at hard. The supply of money was at once contracted. The purchasing power of gold was enhanced. And the power of the large creditor capitalists and banking institutions over the small property-owning class was greatly augmented. 
This law was passed at about the same time that the first trust, the Standard Oil Company, was rising to give the death blow to the doctrine of free competition and trade and to crush out the middleman in business. The day was a sorry one for the long dominant middle class. So they started, and so therefore the middle class representatives in Congress now began an agitation which lasted many years. Um, Interestingly, they called out uh, John Sherman, who would become the Treasury Secretary and the author of like, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Mm-hmm. They called him out for being like a tool of the you know, demonetizers, basically. Mm-hmm. And they called it a conspiracy. And a wow. few other prominent men in Congress with the finances of Wall Street in Europe. And I guess like the banker control of like the U.S. government became more open basically after uh, that. And then the great government bond issue of 1877, by which the bankers made colossal profits, followed Sherman's appointment, I think, to the Treasury Secretary. Yeah, um, they implicated the financiers of Europe in the conspiracy as well. Oh, yeah. There, there's actually some, like, yeah. proto kind of LaRouche. There's yeah. a little LaRouche angle you could take to J.P. Morgan because he was mm. in Britain during the yeah. Civil War and stuff. And I forget that there was something... Uh, there are a couple things I flagged as sounding almost like proto Laurentian. You know, they let's see. At heart, they they love it. They want you know the class system of the UK. Uh, that's like yes, you know. Or will they panic and flee towards it if like they're ever in like you know their omnipotence here is ever in jeopardy? The Anglo-American elites like cannot shake their desire to be like to have like a coat of arms at the end of the day. They yeah. they need and it. like and they no will matter sell out what America. you do nothing can ever take your like status of nobility in like if you know in the uk you know you can like that doesn't matter if you true. have no money doesn't matter if you're a worthless human being like if you're a noble you're a noble and that's like, true you know so you much of this feel does like feel like a quest like through yeah. money to ensure that basically you will always be like in the the hereditary fortunes but kind of talks more about that about like the layabout like inheritors of wealth like in the early 20th century yeah. and just how like absurd <laughs> they're like the amount of wealth they have at their disposal. Yeah, like babies just being, like babies, like, people that have been locked in insane yeah. asylums like their entire lives and, yeah. and stuff. Uh, yeah, anyways. So Morgan, he was a part of the firm Drexel Morgan and Company uh, during this period in the 1870s and he began to be conspicuous in very large transactions. One of them was the floating of the $260 million U.S. government bond issue of 1877. Avoiding pledging into detail, suffice it to say that this bond issue was generally regarded, and not without full reason, as one of the very worst cases that had ever been known of the people being betrayed over to a few bankers. Now here, for the LaRouche heads out there, this is interesting. The selling of the bonds was apportioned among these banking houses. August Belmont, the Rothschilds, J&W Seligman Brothers, and Drexel Morgan and Company, the last named acting for themselves and for the firm of J.S. Morgan and Company in London. This syndicate at once sold the bonds at an advance of from 1% to 4% above the price which they had paid to the government. The profits of the syndicate reached into the tens of millions of dollars. Drexel Morgan and Company alone were credited with, with quote, making... 
a clear profit of $5 million. Their hmm. function consisted in nothing more or less than acting as licensed speculative middlemen for a government which could have disposed of the bonds without intermediaries. Moreover, the participating bankers were able to get the bonds for themselves at, quote, bargain prices, and then through associated national banks, carry on the familiar practice of exacting double interest, one interest from the government, another for the use of currency issued on the basis of those same bonds. Those transactions uh, very comprised obviously but a few of Morgan's varied activities in the decades following the Civil War. It can be well understood that he was, at the same time, engaged in a mass of purely private business dealings of which no details ever became public. Even of his public transactions, the facts as set forth in the public records are more indications than actual and complete accounts of the underlying circumstances. The financiers and businessmen had every motive for enshrouding their affairs in the greatest secrecy, particularly when those affairs in any way related to the to the diverting of government functions for their ends or had to do with the suspicious passage of partial laws or the violation of laws. The motto of the whole commercial class was to keep the public in the dark as much as possible. And even when the usual legislative investigating committees fortified by summary powers of law, (coughs) Warren Commission, uh, mildly (laughs) sought to ascertain the surface of acts only without probing too deep, they were, as a rule, obstructed at every turn. I mean, that's like everything, every single like conspiracy like yeah. thing basically could follow under fall under that rubric, which is to say like conspiracies being an extension of business activities. Mm-hmm. But like, there you go, right? I think that's uh, completely spot on quote yeah. right there at the end. So, okay. So th- basically, yeah, like they made a shitload of money just being the brokers. It kind of sounds actually like the way the Federal Reserve operates nowadays, doesn't it? Where they have the discount window where the major banks, of which there are now like, what, five, being, can basically go and borrow money, which is created out of thin air now, at yes. pretty much 0% interest, and then turn around and charge us, like the everyone else, whatever the fuck they want. And then make a profit for literally, like, you th- you think that really could just be like a public utility, and just make it illegal to like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But no, that's not the system we have. Very yeah. cool. Um. So okay, yeah. Morgan makes a shitload of money off doing that, and then he bought a bunch of shares in the New York Central stock from William H. Vanderbilt. I think you mentioned that and uh, used a magical process of manipulation in the New York and London stock markets and yielded his syndicate an immense profit. And that basically made William Vanderbilt, uh, that, that gained uh, his respect for Morgan, basically, because uh, of his truculent, aggressive nature and his fierce personality and his deformed nose. I guess he had, like, rosacea or something. I always noticed his nose was, like, odd, but it did start... He literally kind of started to... Not body shaming or anything, but, like, kind of started <laughs> to turn into, like, a goblin, uh-huh. like, as he got older, and then, but, like, used that to, like, it's make people uncomfortable. It's that he had a facial disfigurement that he used to intimidate people, like the Joker or something. He the was documentary said... I, I think... Or, no, it was the, the, the biographer woman, I'm forgetting her name, who I watched on C-SPAN, who was, like, very laudatory of him, who I think said that, like, even with the medical treatments available at the time, he could have uh, cured it or something. <laughs> but he chose but not like, to. But, like, he chose not it to. It more it yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, he he just kept chugging along, 
and uh, started working kind of with Vanderbilt, just flipping through here, uh, wrecking the middle class gradually. Yeah, that's a good part. Yeah, nothing could exceed the baseness and hypocrisy of the middle class as a class. I love that line. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Um, no, he doesn't spare, even though he does... He does uh, document the many outrages they were subjected to. He doesn't. He withholds uh, some sympathy by pointing out that, like every chance they get when somebody agitates for workers' rights, yeah, this is the middle class always selfishly like aligns with the elites. But then when their shit gets taken, that suddenly they're populists. Yeah, this is basically all about how they like they fought at every turn, like the campaigns for a shorter workday, and like you know he says of even slight laws for the protection of workers' labor. Uh, combated movements for factory and tenement reforms, but at the same time it insisted upon its right to make and sell shoddy goods and adulterated products and impose them upon workers at extortionate prices. This is all about their opposition to the Pure Food Act, basically like trying to stop people from just like selling poison snake oil. Which I guess was fucking uh, yeah. like rampant back then. It was like, yeah. absolutely before the FDA and stuff. Like there's that a was thing I mean, in, yeah. yeah, there's it's actually really interesting. There's like a whole thing about medical patents and like the you know, the, the sort of genesis of the FDA and how like bitterly people fought against that even being something. Cause this was just I mean, really like it was legal to be Theranos, like back it, before. Yeah, it was pretty much straight <laughs> up legal era. to be Theranos, yeah. Like the idea like, you know, Theranos had to say like just a few drops because they were using like other people's machines like blood test machines like that just worked with like a normal amount of blood being drawn like that would like they wouldn't have had to change the language they could just say like just one drop or whatever like even though like blatantly wasn't true like there Mm -hmm. was no regulation of anything like that you could just straight up lie all the time Um, yeah exactly the part after that's interesting too where he talks about the middle class criticism and also like kind of talks directly about like cowboys or cattlemen oh yeah yeah Yeah. kind of a lot yeah the the hypocrisy that also jumped out at me is like kind of a description of the cowboy class where it's like they're it's all like don't tread on me and shit like that and like yeah it's interesting you city Uh, slickers shouldn't be coming in here but at the same time like they have the same hypocrisy as the middle class right right he's saying like you know not a move on the other hand could the magnates make with the middle class raising the cry of fraud not an untrue accusation is hardly necessary to say but one singularly ill-chosen from a class itself gangrened with fraud the farmers alliance and kindred organizations virtuously fulminated against the extortions and frauds of the magnate class the cattle dealers of the Southwest especially were not merely bitter, but rancorously so, against the railroad kings. Yet all of the large cattle ranches have been obtained by fraud in more or less degree. The cattlemen not only practice extortions, but in their economic wars with adjacent cattlemen force their cowboys to fight and kill the cowboys of their neighbors, and risk being killed themselves. Nearly all of those cowboy affrays so romantically described in fiction arose from nothing more or less than the economic disputes between competing rival master cattlemen. I mean, that's I mean, kind of you never see westerns yeah. with like that plot line. Every yeah. now and then you do, but like the it's cowboys never are like always a, like a symbol of. It's a very yeah, it's a very stark contrast with like the icon of the cowboy, where you know, as he says, like this sort of uh, romance of the cowboy, like as it's like he's on his own, riding into well, the, I you think know, and like what, it's like often when they, the they say cowboy in movies, yeah. they mean either lawman or outlaw. They don't actually mean like a guy who like like you know herds cattle. Right, uh, like even though they're I mean, all kind of cowboys, yeah, in some a it's like cowboys sense. and Indians. Yeah, I know what you mean. Where it's like, well, 
but cowboys most of the plots are about kind of about like, like ranchers killing Native Americans. So that is maybe cowboys, but maybe. But like I'm thinking about like Clint, all the cowboy. all the Clint Eastwood like they're like hired guns. Yeah, he's not a cowboy most of the time. Or yeah, something like, or they're they're desperados basically. Right, or like a, a we, vengeful ghost of some kind, or like something like that. You know. Yeah. What about the um, economic warfare of, of a cowboy narrative? You know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he does go on like about the the small manufacturers and how they were complaining but like they were all making poison food so like shut up basically like, yeah you know tough shit like sorry you got ripped off which is you know uh, definitely fair enough yeah but i feel like maybe there's like a shade of like ivermectin discourse like in here somewhere <laughs> like i don't know even down to the like uh, the association with horses like i feel like you know maybe the, maybe uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or so livestock then, uh, usage. Jumping back a little bit, there was the secret meeting that was very big, which is like a huge turning point. This is a historic meeting in Morgan's house. On January 2nd, 1889, a circular marked private and confidential was issued by the three banking houses of Drexel Morgan and Company, Brown Brothers and Company, and Kidder Peabody and Company. So the whole gang's there. The most painstaking care was exercised that this document should not find its way into the press or otherwise become public. Indeed, extraordinary measures were taken to surround its contents with every precaution of secrecy. Why this fear? Because the circular was an invitation tacitly understood as a command to the great railroad magnates to assemble in Morgan's house, number 219 Madison Avenue, and their form, in the phrase of the day, an ironclad combination. The plan was to make a strict compact which would efface competition among certain railroads and unite those interests in an agreement by which the people of the U.S. could be bled even more effectively than before. (laughs) For the sake of appearance, in case the nature of the undertaking should leak into public print, the promoters garnished over their real purposes with a string of diverting phrases. Their sole aim, so they pleasantly indicted it, was an association, quote, to maintain public, reasonable, uniform, and stable rates, and they added that another object would be the gathering of statistics regarding railways. Such subterfuges deceived nobody but the credulous or uninformed. So I guess uh, he says this, this circular message is a historic document, more important than president's messages. He says when, at a time when the whole gravamen of law and, ju- and uh, juridical, uh, ju- sorry, of law and juridical precedent was being used to insist upon industrial forces remaining stationary and stagnant, this circular came as a proclamation of defiance. Common and statute law sternly declared that the thing called competition and trade must be kept alive, and that if it could not sustain itself by its own merits, the law should demand its maintenance. So the causes producing and justifying competition were passing away, but none of the lawmaking bodies recognized the newer conditions nor made any provisions for them. But the magnates realized the old indiscriminate system of competition was rapidly becoming archaic and that the time was ripe for a more systematic organization of industry. So, while Congress was busy being corrupt and worthless, (laughs) a few magnates issued a brief circular which intrinsically was of far, far more binding weight than entire volumes of statutes impotent in the long run in the face of onrushing economic forces. But the ideas of the people at large and the self-interest of the middle class were against any overthrow of the competitive system. Hmm. Yeah. So they knew it wouldn't be popular, but they had to centralize and cartelize basically industrial production. Of course. And the middle class had to be sacrificed to Moloch, basically. Yeah. But it had to be proceeded with slowly and discreetly. 
because they had a little bit of a labor movement now too that was put uh, yes. agitating recklessly against them. Okay, so then he got all these different uh, railroads together. Let me see. I love, uh, I just oh love yeah, this. The, the whole mandate. edifice of capitalism was built on a vast, ghastly charnel house, overcrowded with the bones of numberless victims. <laughs> Yet the industrial grandees who thus slaughtered with impunity in the insidious ways of the trade paralleled the, paraded themselves as very devout men. Morgan was a vestryman of St. George's Church, New York City, and ostentatiously passed the contribution plate in the name of Christ. Oof. His biographer was like, faith was incredibly important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. So like, As he was like know, cheating on his wife with like his... all these like socialite women and shit. Uh, he was very devout. Very, very yes. devout. So at this meeting, he delivers a mandate. They have one quote from him here. Myers says, if any magnate present were inclined to balk at the prepared program, he was brought to an instant realization of the punishment when Morgan announced, quote, I am authorized to say, I think, on behalf of the banking houses represented here, that if an organization can be formed practically upon the basis submitted by the committee and with an executive committee able to enforce its provisions upon which the bankers shall be represented, they are prepared to say that they will not negotiate and will do everything in their power to prevent the negotiation of any securities for the construction of parallel lines or the extension of lines not approved by that executive committee. I wish that distinctly understood. The threat or promise, as it could be differently interpreted, was assuredly understood. Vast as was the wealth of the magnates present or represented, neither any one or a combination of them dared, had they been so disposed, to defy such an ultimatum. To do so meant inviting the vindictive crushing wrath of a clique of national and international bankers whose money and power could be used with the most destructive results, nor was there any possible way of appealing to a higher power. Yep, no, you're all godless now. Every man in the assemblage knew that judged by prevailing laws, he was participating in a conspiracy, yet no apprehension was acutely felt that the numerous national and state laws would be strictly enforced against him. So confident of its ground was the meeting that the subject of possible prosecution was not given a thought. The sacred doctrine, the quote, inalienable, undeprivable right of competition was, without any ambiguity or ceremony, given a deadly blow. For that, if for no other reason, the meeting was memorable. The magnates were sure of immunity. To them, laws were instruments, not obstacles. The same code of laws, which they lightly stamped underfoot, they could always successfully use against working men on strike, as they did, for example, five years later, in the Great Railroad Strike of 1894, when federal troops were ordered out at their command to overawe and, if necessary, mow down the strikers. Cool. So, yeah, they were fearless. They were going to create this combined um they did another bond deal with morgan in 1895 and had to give over a virtual gift of many millions of dollars for the privilege of having a nominal and transient claim on a supply of gold (laughs) which those same (laughs) bankers had drained from the u.s treasury only a short time (laughs) previously (laughs) right yep uh, the hits just keep on coming oh yeah and then his father junius dies in 1890 bequeathing to him a modest uh, fortune of $10 million. But he was already a multimillionaire kind of in his own right. But, you know, $10 million in 1890, quite yeah. a big chunk, uh, definitely. So that helped. Um, and, uh, yep, so then he just, he just kept chugging, building this kind of 
remorganization syndicate, buying up every kind of uh, industry that he could, and da, da, da. oh yeah, Myers calls out all even the 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 small stockholders. So like all you Tesla day traders out there who think like Elon Musk is going to like save the world or whatever. He kind of calls out in Morgan's financial transactions, immense numbers of the middle class, as well as people higher in the scale of the well to do lost in the aggregate, great sums of money torn from them in the stock jobbing operations in wall street. But they did not blame Morgan personally. Their bitterness was cast at the generic monster called wall street and yet not a single one of those thus stripped had not deliberately set out to enrich himself at someone else's expense. Even those who put their funds in stocks for the purpose of, quote, legitimate investment did so with the full knowledge that the lower the wages paid on the railroads and in the factories, and the longer the daily labor of the workers, the brighter were the chances for a larger dividend. No, is it no. corrupting everybody, whispering into the hearts of mankind? Yes. Um, Wow, it's horrible. So, yeah, he's utterly feared. Then he becomes a coal magnate, seizing yes. uh, the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad. That's something we're going to talk about another day. That's actually how we found this whole book series was by researching that railroad and yeah. its owner, who was definitely one of the little guys that got crushed. Right, uh, Franklin, Franklin Goen. Yeah. yeah, Franklin Goen and the, the great uh, uh, Molly Maguire labor struggle of the, 19, uh, the 1870s. <laughs> that would-be uh, multimillionaire tycoon did meet his end due to some chicanery from J.P. Morgan, but mm -hmm. which is not really talked about in this book, unfortunately. But we'll... Uh, that's a, that's a rich enough story for another day. But yeah, so he was just, uh, I guess they, they assaulted and beat down Morgan and Vanderbilt, assaulted and beat down the price of Reading stock, bought large quantities of it at a very low figure and gained control of the system, not because of the rail line itself, which wasn't extensive, but because it owned, we should mention basically illegally owned, all of the anthracite coal mines and deposits right. in uh, like Schuylkill County, and Carbon County and places like that in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So then he just added coal magnate to basically uh, his uh, another feather in his cap. Um, he used a lot of dummy holding companies, and everyone knew they were subterfuges, but the public authorities took no action. Blah, blah, blah. And then it finally did go to the Supreme Court in 1909, but the railroads emerged victorious with a decision of so equivocal in a nature as to be tantamount to one in their favor. The election of, it's a, you know, uh, since we're kind of running out of time, the election of uh, 1898 is actually interesting. Um, oh, McKinley, you know, right? Yeah, McKinley, right, who Roosevelt was his vice president. At yes, least he was. down the line he was. He was. Uh, I don't yeah. know if he was a, his original vice president, but yeah. I, it's, he, I he think so, because he, he only served it, one term. Yeah, he describes it. Yeah, he was killed, right, which is interesting. By um, uh, Leon Czolgosz, the, uh, yes, the Polish anarchist mm -hmm, um, yeah. and steelworker who, uh, yeah, well, I think he wanted to, he, he was doing some propaganda of the deed. Right. Uh, well, apparently, you know, critical support, apparently, uh, you know, because at least in Gustavus Myers view, perhaps, because, you know, he says, uh, well, I mean, it was kind of like a uh, bourgeois reactionary middle class uprising versus like moneyed interests, uh, you know, in the, t in the two parties. The you mean with class, like Roosevelt, you mean people backing Roosevelt? Well, according to him, McKinley was really like, you know, in the pockets of like the capitalists. Like he was, yeah, you know, yeah, and it was Morgan. Brian who was sort of the 
Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Brian was in a way kind of like the, I don't know if I want to call him like the Trump of his time, but he was like this bombastic, like populist who yes. had all these policies of like, you know, I will not be crucified on a cross of gold. Yeah, like, exactly. But then he also yeah. was like the, wasn't he also the prosecutor in like the Snopes monkey trial like later? So he, he was like, he was very on anti- the side of, yeah, like how dare Not you. teaching evolution. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways. So but yeah, it ran for president a million times, like never could yes, win. Yes, that's like uh, one of the funniest parts of the hilarious comedy Inherit the Wind, uh, where oh yeah. at the end, like he faints from like getting owned too hard by like facts and reason. Yeah, and then he starts right. like muttering like the presidential like, acceptance <laughs> speech that he never got. To <laughs> um, uh, interesting yeah. figure, but yeah, a lot of people um, did uh, coalesce around him as the middle class defender. Yes. Uh, right. Exactly. What Cohen says is uh, the middle class jubilantly declared that no trust could survive a fundamental and, and sweeping decision, which was, you know, when, uh, you know, the uh, what was inherently uh, exuberantly heralded as a notable triumph had been scared in New York State. The courts have declared the sugar trust illegal under the common law provision that no corporation through its stockholders or otherwise had power to give over its rights, powers and duties to a board of directors. So the middle class is very excited about that. They're like, there's no way that, you know, this decision could ever, you know, be resisted by the trusts. But a new surprise is in store for that class. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of showing any trepidation or preparing for the dissolution, such trusts were then in existence, as were then in existence, received the decision with the most irritating equanimity and serenely proceeded to perpetuate their corporate selves by donning a new legal garb. They not only continued to wax great and powerful, but the Sugar Trust, in particular, with the Havermeyers at its head, carried on continually uh, a colossal system of frauds upon the government in the fraudulent weighing of imported sugar. I love that, like, the word fraud is in that sentence twice. Like, (laughs) these frauds extended over a long series of years. It was estimated, and when the facts became public in 1909, that the amount of which the government had been thus defrauded reached fully tens of millions of dollars. In addition to these monumental swindles, the Sugar Trust continuously so abs- continued so absolutely secure in its monopoly that it was easily able to crush all competitors, dictate tariff schedules, and extort in the course of trade an annual profit placed by some authorities at uh, $55 million a year, or a total of uh, uh, 660 uh, million in profits in the period from its organization to 1909. Wow. Speaking in a large political sense, a last stand was made by the middle class in the presidential campaign of 1896. That was its great, although not really final, attempt to defeat the plutocracy and conquer the powers of government for its own policies. Under the leadership of Bryan, the Democratic Party declared itself radical and tremendously and sincerely earnest. But its so-called radicalism was, in essence, a reactionary futile effort to extinguish the trust and reestablish the old confusing competitive conditions in the production and distribution of goods. It was a bitterly contested campaign in which immense sums of money were corruptly distributed by the moneyed interests of the Republican Party to defeat Bryan and the middle class. So, which but then when did. McKinley was elected as president with a Congress, the majority of which was of his views, it was a distinct notification that the plutocracy was in full power a power one in pitched combat and therefore interpreted as a popular approval of the rule by the great magnus and trusts. 
Yep. All right. That's right. Yeah. But then it's really funny. Yeah. (laughs) But but it's true. Yeah. Like if you win like a barely contested election, then you have like the clearest mandate of all. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I mean, but then he gets a little bit of a curveball because, you know, this crazy Pollock shoot. I wouldn't like, did he just, I don't know. I guess he was involved with some like labor societies or something. But, like, you know, this disgruntled Pollock, like, shoots McKinley and then uh, this old uh, New York blue blood with an independent streak, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, basically bumps on the scene. And I guess they did, you know, they end up butting heads because Teddy Roosevelt realizes that his appeal, uh, his popular appeal rests upon standing up to these trusts. Because at this point... Morgan is like absolutely Morgan and Rockefeller and like Harriman are all kind of like really riding high and uh, control such large swaths of the economy. But uh, Myers like never missing a chance to shit on Teddy Roosevelt uh, (laughs) writes, uh, you know, an overbearingly potent and heroic, quote, great man, Roosevelt, appeared. Many a descriptive work has been written of him, and doubtless in the curious nature of things, we are likewise fated to see many a statue of him. For what? If history tells the tale aright, it will tell how he begged campaign funds from the very trust magnates who he pretended to flout, how in a critical moment in the national election of 1904, he so despaired of success that he was forced to appeal to Morgan, Harriman, and their fellow magnates for a fresh and immediate infusion of funds. The world does not revere a loser unless he be a great one and for a great cause. True. In considerable degree, Roosevelt fought the fight of a rapidly decaying cause, that of the middle class, a cause doomed to fall innobly and rightly so. On the surface, he seemed the big man of the day. In point of fact, he was vanquished by such magnates as Morgan, Harriman, and Rockefeller. They, to all appearances, mere private individuals, defeated every move of him who was supposed to be invested with even greater powers than many potentates. The irresistible progress of the trust movement and the all-comprehending power of the magnates can be better estimated when it was recalled that it was during Roosevelt's administration that the most antagonistic campaign thus far essayed against the trust was carried on. At least it seemed so, if invective and suits at law counted. But at basis, Roosevelt, despite his pretenses, was an instrument to the trust magnates, which fact was connoted anew by the circumstance that he was the president who signed the act striking out the imprisonment clause from the anti-rebating act, assuring magnates and corporations full immunity from criminal prosecution. I think he described that elsewhere about how they actually got a law passed that, like, if you're doing corruption, but you're like an employee of a railroad company like you can't be criminally prosecuted wow <laughs> like you just can't be because like you're it's like uh i'm just following orders or something like that but like nobody could be prosecuted <laughs> basically so all right yeah so, so. i guess you know he says uh, the, the the big talk uh but tiny stick you know um mm-hmm. kind of the opposite of what roosevelt said about himself right and um also in this uh, the first few years of we don't need, I think it's one of the more well known things uh, about Morgan, but he just straight up bought out Andrew Carnegie for $300 million. Um, I think in maybe it was 1902, 1903. And <clears throat> it kind of synced up because Morgan was like afraid of actually going fully like to war with Carnegie, but he wanted his, uh, his steel, you know, operation. And Carnegie secretly was, like, getting older and kind of wanted to, like, semi-retire. So he threw out, he went over to his house and said, 
I want to like buy your company from you. How much would you want for it? And he threw out 300 million as a joke number. Like that's way too much. Like you're never going to. And he was like, I think his response was, will you take it in mortgage? And basically mm-hmm. was like, yeah, okay, cool. I'll pay you $300 million. And so he did it. But then Myers noted that later there was like an anecdote where basically they met at like some festival or something. I don't know. So they were at vacationing somewhere a few years later and they met on a yacht and they were having breakfast and Carnegie asked him like, you know, like I always felt he started being eaten by the, the prospect that he could have asked for a higher number and JP Morgan would have said yes. And he's like, you know, I really should have asked you for like 400 million. And and JP Morgan's like, and I would have paid it. And then Andrew Carnegie <laughs> was like so distraught that he couldn't finish his like coffee and marmalade and like left. No. <laughs> like, um, so and then that's like where the US, that's where US Steel basically came from. Is he bought it and organized it into like this massive like vertically integrated cartel, basically, right? Yeah. We didn't really get into Morgan at his zenith, but maybe we can just do, since we have to kind of do a separate episode for Hereditary Fortunes, maybe we can do Morgan at his zenith. Maybe we can. We talked time. We talked a little bit about it, yeah, because we are, we're running into our last uh, minutes uh, here. Because they're, <laughs> they're even, I mean, in the last decade of his life, there's still a lot of good yeah, uh, like stuff. Yeah, like literally the like, savior of the nation. There's like 200 shit. pages of this book left, most of which You're are right. about jp morgan jp morgan so we might just have to leave a jp morgan cliffhanger it might give us more chance to uh yeah i mean to watch inshallah when we actually do that episode we will make it to the other book we said we're going to talk about (laughs) and won't have to do three episodes so i thought this Uh, was going to be the end of the series but actually it became an episode where Surprise. two new installments of the se- potentially two <laughs> new installments of the series are being spawned all right well, but this is just yeah. like when they split the last movie of the trilogy into two this sections like so they can make more War money part two. yeah, yeah you're right exactly, exactly. yeah <laughs> um many well i think yeah the last time we did it i think we had to split volume two into like, like a, three parts a, B, yeah and so C never mind episode so or even worse it's because yeah. it, we it's because the language is so good we have to read yeah these, like, we long, just have to read very florid passages because we just keep <laughs> finding bangers i hope um, it's like asmr to some people just yeah. listening to this like like high-minded like 1910 yeah well with some of these episodes like if you go to well, sleep like you can just go to sleep listening to the asmr of gustavus myers in vocal fry and then you wake up and the episode's still going. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah. OK, well, you know, because we don't want but this is really the meatiest part of the book. We don't want to necessarily uh, speed past all of it. And, and we've gone for several hours already. Yes. And that'll uh, give me a chance to kind of closely read the end of uh, the hereditary fortune's book which i yeah did there's not definitely get some chance. good stuff in there and maybe yeah. dig up some clues to see if you wrote any other essays about about standard oil or harriman or any of these people that would become uh, prominent figures in a lot of the parapolitical things we've discussed you know but i think yeah. I, it is fascinating how you can see like okay western union telegraph like kind of paralleling to twitter today and then you even have people like, say, like Richard Bissell Sr. or whatever, or like the son of some of the people from this generation end up being 
these extremely spooky cold warriors that are getting all involved in the foundations and the CIA and going in and out of government, then going to business and stuff. Even though I think, I think in general, I don't know if Gustavus oversells this in the ending of hereditary fortunes, but it's almost like they had to go a little underground in the 20th century in a way that, because it, it got so around this time that we're stopping it here. It's getting so egregious that basically the, the, the common people and even the middle class are getting fed up with this bullshit, basically. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the ultimate uh, exhibition of fed up when, you know, a certain a certain little guy uh, hops on a train, you know, from Switzerland to yes. uh, Petrograd and... <laughs> Turns over, turns the whole table over, basically. You know, uh, yeah. Talk about jostling the uh, seance table. You know, yeah, just exactly. Flipped yeah. it right over. Yeah, the, it drove the money changers well, out yeah, of the, uh, the temple said, of the Tsar. It seemed like all the tables were turning while the world was standing still. Right. Yeah. Um, it did make it did make me think also as almost like spiritual, like sequel or like uh, kind of in the lineage of. The history of the great American fortunes. Vladimir Lenin's uh, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, which came out in 1915. It's one of my favorite, it's probably my favorite Lenin thing, one of my favorite like mm-hmm. Marxist texts overall. And I feel like that almost like maybe, because that opens starting about uh, talking about cartels and the, the process of cartelization and how yeah, basically know, like the crushing of independent competitors has occurred in all the capitalist countries, very much like Myers, but then says like, this is where it's going now. It's going global. It's going into imperialism mode, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking like, maybe we should just do episodes about like certain like core Marxist literature. Cause people might appreciate that. And I, I've heard people complain, you know, they're like, we're not materialist enough or whatever. So I think I, I think like an imperialism Vladimir Lenin imperialism episode would yeah. be a good like spiritual uh, addition to like this series in particular um, mm-hmm. because it's so relevant and also I think I talked in like I talked in the Demon Forces episode about like Kwame Nkrumah's like neo colonialism and that whole theory and how like relevant and vital it is and like and you know he was very inspired by Marxist stuff but like the biggest direct inspiration for him in that book was Lenin's imperialism. So it's had like this very like practical, I feel like influence on, you know, political figures and revolutionaries and stuff in the 20th century. And it's also just a really good like description of it's like very it's really Lenin like cracking his knuckles and like getting into the real meat of like numbers and facts and figures and like but it's it's got that good old like Lenin sarcasm, especially maybe also for our kind of non-Marxist listeners, it also might be interesting to like yeah. examine it like in this kind of context of like, hey, you know, put aside what you think, any of you trad cats <laughs> listening, like put aside what you think about evil Lenin, whatever, but just like, uh, just, just read him as a political analyst, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, or whatever, a, 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 a political Speaking economic of- commentator. Speaking of like spiritual succession, uh, it did occur to me like shortly after our discussion about like Epstein and like uh, slave trafficking in Africa, that that was like where Bill Clinton went with Epstein and the Little Lita Express, right? To Africa. I mean, yeah, maybe it was Kevin South Spacey, Africa. Yep. 
But it was no, like uh, a humanitarian mission to Africa. Yeah, I forget right? exactly where they went. Um, yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, there's, well, exactly. I don't think it, it, yeah, they did all go to Africa. And there's a few African connections to this. I mean, yeah. I think the New York Chemical Bank comes up at one point. Maybe it's in Hereditary Fortunes, but they were super involved in like uh, investing in Liberia. And then I mentioned Riggs Bank, that Corcoran and Riggs, uh, Charles Taylor had an account at Riggs Bank in the 80s, you know, just something CIS assets tend mm. to do. And uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, connect. We didn't even get into Elkins, the the kingpin oh, of yeah, like, West Elkins Virginia. Weiner. Yeah, we definitely need Yeah, that, maybe the next time, time we'll get into him. Because didn't did he yeah. come up in like the Jim Sullivan episode or something? Like talking about Jerome? I don't know Jerome? if he did. All I know is Widener Library at Harvard, which is like, you know. Uh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because he, uh, he went out to New Mexico and became, like, a tycoon in New Mexico and then married the daughter of, like, the kingpin of West Virginia and then ran West Virginia like his fiefdom uh, after being one of Quantrell's band of marauders during the Civil War. <laughs> so he's, like, <laughs> a desperado. Turn, yeah, no, there, there's a lot of really good stuff. Um, and the uh, Hines and Morse... Uh, I think I wrote getting BCCI'd, uh, the ice trust murdering thousands of poor children. Uh, it's literally like an ice, an ice monger, like raising the price on like tiny blocks of ice so that poor people couldn't chill their milk. And then all like thousands of poor children died of like spoiled milk. Like <laughs> the, all right. The, yeah. We'll yeah. We, we got some so good shit. Go. So maybe we'll, we'll come back and we'll, we'll finish it up uh, next yeah. week. Yeah. Oh, quickly, just to cover my ass here, I remembered who I worked for at HLN. Just in case someone really sus with a G name works at HLN, they're like, Colin <laughs> worked for the worst person of all time. <laughs> uh, it was Jane Velez Mitchell, Nancy Grace Knockoff. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. I had no, the I, lowest I, level job on her show, and <laughs> I hated it, and everyone hated me. So, but Fair enough. Go. I can attest right. to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely a knockoff, uh, Nancy mm-hmm. Grace. But yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we'll leave it there. For now, to be continued. Until next time, or until that time. <laughs> to yeah. be continued, but until that time, dear listener, stay vigilant.
谢。